Well, the good weather rolling into town reminds us of certain priorities that we need to be thinking about. One of the ones that comes to mind for me as soon as the weather starts to get nice is the ant spray. Weather gets nice, and I know these things are coming, and I always seem to forget it. It's like the, the, the warm air starts rolling in, and the ants go marching in by the thousand into my kitchen, and I look down, and I say, I forgot these things again. How do I always forget? There's a priority, a lot of things to do in the spring, grass to be mowed, and other weeds to be taken care of, and mulch to be purchased, and you know, the, the whole bit, but I need to remember to prioritize the ant spray. There's priorities that we know, hey, I need to think about this. This is more urgent than that thing, right? If, if you're new with this, we're jumping in here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy and churches in the ancient city of Ephesus. This is the last known letter that, that Paul wrote. It's his closing remarks before he goes to see Jesus in a sense. And what he's telling Timothy is, Timothy, I want your life to count Timothy, don't forget the most important things. And Timothy, more than not forgetting the most important things, prioritize the most important things. It's one thing to know what you ought to do. It's one thing to know you need to spray for the ants. It's a totally different thing to prioritize it. So Timothy, in a sense, is reading this, not being struck with a whole bunch of new information, but a reminder of things he already knew to be prioritized. And so when you read 2 Timothy, one of the things you need to know is you shouldn't be necessarily reading it thinking, this is brand new info, I've not heard this before, but rather, here are core truths of Christian faith, and I need to be reminded of these things, and then I need to prioritize these things. Just like you probably have a spring checklist of the things you already know you need to do, Ah, but I need to prioritize some of these as we go, all right? So, so what I want to see here in 2 Timothy chapter 2 is four priorities of a disciple that Paul lays out and expects Timothy and us to embody. Jump right in. Here's the first priority of a disciple. Priority number one, rightly handle Scripture. Here's a priority. You rightly handle Scripture. Now, I hope you're keeping your copy of God's Word open so we can go back to it frequently, and I can show you that I'm not just coming up with interesting things to talk about, but I'm telling you what God's Word says. So look back at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14, and here's what it says. Remind them of these things, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman or a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. It's interesting, you read that, and there's a, a verb tense in the original language, the Greek, that sort of emphasizes that phrase, do your best, that could be also translated, spare no effort, Timothy. Tackle this thing no matter what. Husbands, you ever get a, a memo like that from your wife? Tackle this thing no matter what before I get back. That's kind of what Paul's telling Timothy here. Not that they're married, don't take it that way, but hey, this is of utmost importance. You've got to get this right. And Paul starts by giving some negative examples as people didn't rightly handle Scripture. 
He says these guys quarreling about words, and they're, they're filled with all kinds of irreverent babble. They have lots to say, but the things they're fired up about are not the things that God is fired up about. Doesn't mean that they're, the things they're talking about are totally off the wall, sinful, evil, wicked. They're just not keeping the main things the main thing. Right, so, so in, in our day today, you might see this as endless debates about Calvinism or critical race theory. You might see this as just an absolute insatiable obsession with political happenings or the latest fads from what some megachurch pastor did, whether it was good or bad. And it's like, it's not wrong to engage on those things, but if that, those things become the main thing, then you've missed the main thing. The whole Bible is pointing as to who Jesus is. And what Paul actually says is this leads to huge amounts of ungodliness. This kind of talk spreads like gangrene, and it results in major doctrinal error and upsetting the faith of some people. You see the the urgency that Paul is placing on this. Now, in, in the passage, there's a section where it talks about they say the resurrection has already happened. It's important to notice in that spot, they're not denying that Jesus rose from the dead. That's not what they're saying. What they are saying is Jesus rose from the dead and the final last day resurrection when Jesus comes back, that's already happened. Interesting take there, but that's, that's kind of where they were at. The point I want to draw it a little more, fur, uh, more fully here, though, is the urgency and the importance of what Paul is saying here of why this matters so much. In other words, we might hear a warning like this and say, boy, being extra feisty with my words, being a little loose with my words, it definitely is something I need to work on, but it doesn't sound as significant as how Paul makes that sound. Like he says, this results in major doctrinal error, major ungodliness. He compares it to gangrene, which could result in amputation, body parts. Like there's a high urgency, and maybe we don't think that way about our misplaced words. The point he's making is that people severely lose their way when they don't rightly handle the Word of God. They use God's Word to say what they want it to say instead of what God intended it to say. And one of the things Paul's pointing out is you can try and go out and stamp out these errors once they come in, but you'd be better served to start with rightly handling Scripture in the first place. If I go back to my ant example, you can put the ant traps in the house and try and get rid of those suckers. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But if you can get them before they get in the house, you're going to be a lot better off. So Timothy, here's the warning. Learn to rightly handle God's word on the front end, because once the error gets in, it's really hard to stamp it out. That's the logic of what he's saying there. And so I want to take a minute and put some slides on the screen and walk through what does it mean to rightly handle the word of truth? So you start in the the first point there is you see the text of Scripture, what's written down. And we want to learn about what the text says. What do the words mean? Just read it carefully. Understand what's going on. Is this present tense, past tense, future tense, these sorts of things. And there's a great temptation to say, once I understand what it says, I go straight from the text, draw a line to us and now. Well, now I know what that means. Right to application The Bible's here for your transformation, not your information. Well, it's true. The Bible is there to transform you, not merely to inform your mind. But if you go straight from the text to now, there's a big theological word we use to describe that. 
the disaster zone. You guys, you understand, the Bible's not written as a newspaper or a magazine or an article in 21st century today. You can't just go from what it says straight to us and assume like, well, I'm going to get things right. One of the ways you often see this done, or I hear about it sometimes, is people will take a verse like 2 Chronicles 7.14. Maybe you're familiar with that verse. It says, if my people who are called by my name, will, if they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. And you often will hear a verse like that say, oh, look, if the American church would just humble themselves and pray and seek God's face and turn from their wicked ways, God will heal America. It's an election year. Second Chronicles 714, guys. It's not talking about America. Not at all what it's talking about. It's not a promise given to us today. Now, should you humble yourself? Yes. Should you pray and seek God's face? Yes. Should you turn from your wicked ways? Yes. Should you ask God to ask? Yes. And might God actually do a great work in America and bring revival? You bet. I hope all that happens. It's not at all what 2, Corinthians, or 2 Chronicles 7.14 is saying. And when I start using Scripture to serve my ends instead of what God has said, that's when I end up in the disaster zone. So instead of going straight from the text to us, to rightly handle the word means I then go to the original audience and understand them and then. What did it mean to the original audience at that point? And I'm asking questions of historical context. What did it mean to that first audience in the city of Ephesus when Timothy received this letter from Paul? And you do a little bit of digging there, and sometimes we think once I get that down, now I'm ready to make application and jump straight to myself. But the problem there is you often jump right into the ditch of legalism when you do that. Because the Pharisees knew all sorts of stuff about the Bible. And they read these commands like, okay, now I understood what it meant, now I'm going to go do it. An example of what I mean by this, you might read the story of David and Goliath. Okay, I understand. David trusted God, went out and slayed his giants. I've got a really difficult week. I've got some severe criticism I'm facing. Anxiety is my giant. And if I trust God, then like David, I can slay my giants. And this is mainly about me and what I'm supposed to do for God. And friends, the Bible is not mostly about you and what you're supposed to do for God. It's mostly about God and what he's done for you. And to read the Bible in this way is to not acknowledge the gospel of Jesus Christ as the center of the Bible. The hope for sinners to be saved and for saints to grow is Jesus' finished work on the cross. So instead of jumping from then straight to the now section, we go across and see, now what does this passage tell me about the gospel? This is how I rightly handle the word of truth. So instead of saying, now how am I going to conquer my giants, I recognize, no, I'm not David who conquers the giants. I'm like the Israelite soldiers who were in the background, scared, spitless. And Jesus, my king, came in and conquered all the giants in the land. And even though I was scared to lift a finger, I ride in on his victory because he went ahead and he conquered sin and death and hell and Satan. And now I follow in his victory because he's already finished the work. Amen? That's what it means to rightly handle the word of truth. And so once I start at the text and know what it means, I go up to the original audience and know what it meant for them. I read it in light of the gospel. At that point, I can draw that final arrow down and start to make good applications to my own life. This is what it means to rightly handle the word of truth. Now, maybe you hear me describe that. You say, Justin, your little chart thing, it's fine, it makes sense. But this sounds like a lot of work. 
I thought God's truth was supposed to be easy to understand. I'm looking for a three to five minute devotional. Can we simplify a little bit? It's an understandable perspective. I get that. But let me just push back on you if you're kind of wondering if it's too much work there. My 10-year-old this year in elementary school started learning algebra. And I know that in a few years before she graduates, I don't know what classes she'll take, but as a 16 or 17-year-old, she or her peers will be learning physics and trigonometry and calculus and advanced biological concepts, all kinds of stuff where they're engaging their brain because that's what's expected. Now, why would it be then when we come to God's word, we would think, well, I shouldn't have to engage my brain on this. This should just be like eating a clementine, just fruit all the time. Well, there are easy-to-read passages, easy-to-understand passages, but we get into trouble. We don't rightly handle the word of truth when we think we can check our brain at the door and go through the right processes of understanding God's word, how it applies to the gospel, and how it connects to our life. Disciples say, I will prioritize rightly handling the word of God. And Paul says, when you fail to do that, the consequences are dire. So don't just know you should do that. Prioritize doing that. That's the first priority. Second priority of a disciple that they're going to talk about is you repent daily. Repent daily. We pick up in verse 19. Look back at your copy of God's word. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord turn from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart." Here's the second major point that Paul makes, the second priority of a disciple. Disciples turn from iniquity. They repent daily. That word repentance, that's a Bible word. It's not one we use in every single day language, but it simply means turn. You hear that somebody say repent, turn. I was pursuing my own path. I turn and I'm now following Jesus. That's what it means to repent. But it's, the, the idea of it is not really limited to the Bible. In fact, I would say repentance is a hallmark value of modern culture. That might sound odd that I say repentance is a hallmark value of modern culture, but just wait and watch someone use the wrong pronoun in a semi-public place and what's expected of them. That they talk to their agent, they put out a statement that says, I was wrong, I'm sorry, I'm going to turn from my folly, I'm going to go get counseling, and I'm going to seek to use the right verbs and pronouns moving forward. They're saying, I have repented. Right? So repentance might be a biblical word, but the concept is clearly understood for everybody in our world today. Now, the section there of 2 Timothy 2 we were talking about, there's this analogy of a great house. Maybe you read that and you think, what, what does that mean? Well, the, the house being referenced is the visible church. By visible church, it means when you look out and you see people at church, that's the visible church. That's the people you can see. And what Paul's saying is many people at church are true possessors of Christ. They're genuine Christians. And there are others who come to church. They talk the part, look the part, 
smell the part. They do all the stuff, but they don't actually possess Christ. They are false professors. And so he talks about vessels of gold and silver, those that are, that are honorable, set apart for honorable use, he says. These are true believers. And then he goes on and he says, well, there's vessels of wood and clay, those who are therefore dishonorable use. Paul says, these are not true believers. They might have a lot of Jesus language. They might have a lot of religious activity. They might go to church on a regular basis, but they don't actually possess Christ. And that's why at the beginning of this section, it says, the Lord knows who are his. He has a perfect knowledge. He can see the heart where I can't and none of us can. That means that I can be deceived about whether you are actually a Christian or not. You might be deceived about whether you are actually a Christian or not. And he says, here's how you might know. Here's one hallmark characteristic of a Christian. You practice daily repentance. In the prior section, he's been talking about doctrinal purity. And now he's talking about personal purity and holiness and seeking Jesus. Now look back at the passage. Let me show you. You've kind of got the idea. Let me show you this is clearly in there. Verse 19 the priority, you turn from iniquity. Verse 21, he will cleanse himself from what is dishonorable. Verse 22, flee youthful passions. You see that rejection of all of those things. And then, verse 22, he says, instead, you're going to pursue something else. You were going that way, you're fleeing youthful passions, and now you're pursuing righteousness, love, faith, peace. And what's the last part of verse 22 say? along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In other words, repentance is I'm turning, no longer following myself, turning now following Jesus, and I'm doing it in community with other believers. Christianity is not a solo sport, Paul's saying. You're not supposed to do the Christian life alone. In the New Testament, there's no such thing as a free agent Christian who doesn't have a commitment to another local body of believers where they are locking arms and following Jesus together. And this idea we find all over the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 3, for example, starting in verse 12, we see on the screen, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see that, that same principle. Pay attention, turn from sin with other believers. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. You think you're feeling pretty good spiritually? You're feeling strong? He's saying you need to be repenting daily, turning from sin, because the moment you think that you're strong, you're weak. Or we just go back to the prior letter to Timothy. This is 2 Timothy. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And what does Paul say to Timothy? Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Keep a close watch. You know it needs watching, and you need watching. So when we say repenting, we're turning, I mean turning away from your badness. It's easy to think of turning away from bad deeds, bad actions, but biblically it's far more than just turning away from the bad things I do. It means repenting of my bad thoughts, even if I don't act on them. It means repenting of my bad desires, even if I don't linger on them. I recognize things in my heart and say, that is not a good thought. That is not a good desire. That's against God's will. I'm going to name it, 
Tell God what's there, and I'm going to turn from it. And it's often helpful to tell another close brother or sister, hey, I'm turning from this thing. Will you pray for me? Will you walk arms and strive alongside me? You turn your eyes on Jesus. So you turn from certain thoughts. You turn from certain substances. You turn from anger. You turn from bitterness. You turn from anxiety. Say, no, I'm turning to Jesus, and I'm trusting him. What happens is as you start to repent and you turn and you fall again, you start to get kind of discouraged, don't you? Was that actually real, that repentance thing? Because I thought I turned, but now I'm right back where I was again. And I've been doing it over and over. I think I'm repenting, I think I'm turning, but I keep back in the same ditch that I've been in for a while. And at this point you find out if you're turning and repenting in a religious way, you're white-knuckling it in a moral sense, or if you're turning, instead of in a religious way, to a gospel-centered way, where I'm turning my eyes to Jesus, not my own effort as the main thing. And when I turn my eyes to Jesus, then I'm trusting in his finished work, both for my security and for my effort, instead of looking in and telling myself, I'm a pretty good person. I've been working pretty hard. I've been striving hard enough. And there's a huge difference there because there's all kinds of religious repenting that happens around that's not according to the word of God. It's just religious tryhardism. And it'll take you straight to hell. Here's the thing where this cuts even a little deeper. Bible tells us we don't even repent just of bad actions, thoughts, desires. The Bible says you actually repent of your good things. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 says, all your righteousness, all your best days, all your best words, all your best thoughts are like filthy rags. So even when I'm at my best, it's still got sinful motivations baked in that I'm not even aware of. Our, our youth pastor, Pastor John, told me this example this week, and I thought it was brilliant, so I'm going to use it, and I'm, I'm glad he's giving awesome biblical content like this to our students. He said it this way. He said, imagine you've got somebody coming in from out of town, and you do all the, the, the laundry, you get all the, the extra bed you know, sheets and all that ready for them. You take it out of the dryer, you go to place it on the bed, and you realized you had a Sharpie in the washing machine. That's what it is to have a sin nature that even on my best cleaning day, I take stuff out of the washing machine of my own heart where I'm trying to scrub as hard as I can, and it's still marred with sin. It's still got Sharpie marker all over it. And if I just try to run another load of laundry with religious tryhardism, it's not going to help. You need a supernatural cleaning agent from God in the person of Jesus Christ to come and make your heart new and to continue flushing the sin out of it. And sometimes God gives us like a supernatural tide pod, and it just like takes away the desire. I'm like, oh, that was awesome. Thank you, God. Most of the time, that's not how it happens for me. But what he'll also do is he'll give you supernatural strength with that spray stuff that gets on the worst, you know, the worst stains, whatever that stuff's called, and it'll give you supernatural desire and ability to keep scrubbing it out where it's not you doing the work, it's his spray on your life doing the work, but he's giving you the desire and the strength to keep applying it. That's what it is to repent even of my goodness. 
I'll give you a couple examples of what that looks like. It's like sometimes you'll see people, maybe at church, and you know you're supposed to be kind of friendly because it just feels like unchristian to not be friendly at church. But at the core of it, I'm being friendly to people, or you might be friendly to people, not because you genuinely care for them, but because you want to be seen as friendly. It ends up being a selfish motive underneath it. Or you know somebody needs help, and you're saying, hey, let me know if you need any help. But deep inside of you, you're really hoping they need three to five minute help, not three to five hour help. Because if they need three to five minute help and you can help them with it, then you look like a helpful person. But if it's three to five hour help, it's like, that's inconveniencing. I really don't want to help in that way. So even my good deeds of offering to help, I gather selfishness baked into this. This is why if you go all the way back to the Protestant Reformation, 500 years ago, Martin Luther nails his set of 95 theses, his objections to the doors of the church there in Germany. Do you know what the very first one he says? All of life is repentance. Christian, repenting daily, turning from sin is what God expects of you. Yes, you repent to become a Christian and you continue repenting all your days. And yes, maybe you know that like I know to pray for ants, but have you prioritized that this week? Or have you lost track of it and the ants are streaming into your kitchen because you're not repenting of sin and taking it to the cross where Jesus has conquered that sin and paid for its consequences? Priority number two of disciples, we repent daily. Here's the third priority. Correct with gentleness. Correct with gentleness. Verse 23, we continue in 2 Timothy 2. Paul writes, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. This one might be a bit of a head-scratcher for you in this sense. You think, what are the core priorities of a disciple? Well, number one, Justin, you said to read the Bible and understand it in the right way. Got it. Number two, turn from sin and follow Jesus, repent, got it. Is correcting with gentleness actually like a core thing that disciples need to be doing? Like, I get correction is probably part of the Christian life, but is it really like in the top five list? Paul does highlight it here. And one of the things I've noticed is that people who live on mission, who are regularly engaging with unbelievers on spiritual matters, know how hard it is to correct with gentleness. And maybe this strikes you as not that important for a Christian because you're not living on mission, engaging with unbelievers that frequently. And you're just kind of wrapped up in a holy huddle. And it's like Paul saying, man, you need to realize like there's a real spiritual war going on with real truth and real eternal consequences. And you need to engage in the lives of those near you and start asking them some questions that might make things a little uncomfortable over dinner, but it's worth it because their soul is at stake. And when that happens, you'll find out it is difficult to figure out how to not be quarrelsome, correct with gentleness, care about truth, and compassion at the same time. Really difficult to do that. And Paul seems to be most concerned in this context with the holy huddle crew that's so focused on a fight for truth that they engage in stupid dust-ups. They're not kind. They don't patiently endure evil. They're glad to correct and glad to be harsh in their correction. The gentleness piece is missing. Let me, let me state the very obvious Sunday school answer here. Jesus is the ideal. 
John 1.14, he's full of grace, full of truth. Oftentimes we think, well, I'm more of a truth person, but I'm trying to grow in the grace, or I'm more of the grace person trying to grow in the truth. And Jesus was full of both. So to be like Jesus is that you're aspiring to be full of both, just as he was. And if you're thinking about this idea of correcting with gentleness in a practical context, you've got somebody on your mind, like, how do I speak to that? I realize this can be really complicated, knowing, okay, do I need to correct this matter? Do I let love cover it? Do I just say nothing at all? How do I know how to proceed on this? And so I want to really quickly give you six considerations, and these will just be bullet point rapid fire. If you've got questions on it, I'm glad to chat afterwards, because that's just how these things go. There's, there's There's a lot of nuance to be heard. First consideration, consider your proximity. Proximity, here's what I mean by that. You have a higher obligation to a member of Parkside Bible Church, if you hear them speaking error, than you do to someone who's just attending as a guest. You've committed to a faith family. That's what it means to have a meaningful membership. There's a higher level of commitment there. And you have a higher level of commitment there than, say, to perhaps your neighbor, But you've also got a higher obligation to your neighbor than you do your random friend on Facebook from Texas. So consider how close the person is to you. Second consideration, consider the theological weight. In other words, there's lots of truths in the Bible, and all of them are important, but some are extra important. So if you hear someone say, well, I think of the Holy Spirit kind of like the force. Super important you correct that. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force that just kind of floats around and does good stuff, you know, when he can or when it's appropriate. No, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, and every part of God is a personal God, not an impersonal force floating out there. This is a heretical teaching about the Trinity, that, he's, that the Holy Spirit is just a force. We need to correct that and get that right. Holy Spirit has mind, emotions, will. Ephesians 4 says you can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You don't grieve an impersonal force. That's really important that we get that right. But you might hear somebody else say, well, I think the King James Version is the only translation of the Bible that's really reliable. Well, that's also wrong, but it's not as big of a deal that we correct that right away than if we start to get the Trinity wrong. Right? So you consider, what's the theological weight of the error we're talking about here? Consideration number three, pray for yourself. Pray for yourself. Ask, am I assuming the best in this situation? Pray over your spirit entering into a conversation. Am I being aggressive, overly seeking a fight in this thing? Pray for your tone in how you speak, but also pray for courage, Because if you enter into one of these conversations, you're confident that God's word is spoken on this matter, and it matters greatly for eternity, and you need to speak with boldness and ask the Holy Spirit to strengthen you. Fourth consideration, pray for them. Pray for them. Consider what's going on in their life. What are the circumstances that might be causing them stress or difficulty right now? What's the best approach in beginning a conversation with this person? Maybe you're the best one to enter in, but maybe there's somebody else in your community group that would be better to go have that conversation. And you love the person who spoke error well by praying for them and considering the best way and the best person to reach out to them. Consideration five, give a humble, clear request. 
a humble, clear request. By humility, I'm saying, hey, I'm seeking to understand what you were saying here and what you meant here. I realize I might have misheard or perhaps you misspoke. But I'm not playing theological hard to catch. I'm going to give a clear request as well and say, I thought I heard you say this. And if that's true, this is a major issue for this reason. Right? Tell people, here's why I think this is a big deal. Humble and clear in your request at the same time. And then number six, final consideration, commit yourself to Scripture. Commit yourself to Scripture. It is our final authority on what God has said. It's important we be able to take people back to the Bible and tell them, here's what God's Word says, not just here's what my denomination says or here's what this tradition says. The ancient confessions and creeds are very helpful. I'm pro them. But the Bible's the final authority. And you got to be willing to understand you might be wrong on an issue. And perhaps the person you're trying to talk to has been seeking a chance to correct you with gentleness. And so if you can see from God's word that you're in the wrong, you got to be willing to change based on God's word. So you're committing to scripture throughout the entire thing. Six considerations. How do I correct with gentleness. It is a priority for disciples because when you live on mission, you will encounter erroneous teaching. You try and wholly huddle it up with just us four no more, not going to be an issue. But Jesus has called us to go out with a message to proclaim that requires us that we learn how to correct with gentleness. Fourth and final priority of a disciple, seek grace. Priority four, seek grace. If you're following along in your copy of God's word, we pick up at the end of verse 25 here. Here's what it says. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This verse makes it very, very clear. Where does repentance come from? It is a gift from God. It is his grace that gives you repentance. And over and over in 2 Timothy, we've been seeing Paul put God's sovereignty and man's responsibility side by side. Repentance is a gift he gives. And just a couple verses earlier, he said, you go cleanse yourself. They run together. You have to uphold both of them. And perhaps it's easy to read a verse like this or a couple of verses like this in kind of a cold and detached fashion. I want to encourage you not to do that. Read this as a personal letter from Paul to Timothy as it was recognize Timothy's reading this. He has critics in the church, people who've walked away from the church, who have wounded him deeply. Imagine people like that in your own life. Think of the thoughts running through his head, how Paul would tell Timothy this over a cup of coffee. He'd tell him, Timothy, these guys walked closely with you. And remember, sin is causing them to do stupid things. Timothy, you know, sin always makes us stupid. We do irrational things that don't make sense. That's what's happening here. Timothy, pray that they come to their senses. You love these guys. Pray that they can get out of Satan's handcuffs. Because they sound really confident and really brash and like everything is figured out for them and people are following them. Timothy, remember, they're doing Satan's work and they don't even realize it. Pray that God will give them repentance, that he will break through because, Timothy, they need his grace. And when this hits close to home in your own life, you're going to read this passage totally differently. When it's your spouse that goes off the deep end in whatever way that means, you don't read this as a cold, detached, 
back then kind of thing. You say, God, I desperately need you to break into that person's life. When it's one of your kids that walks away, say, Lord, please grant them repentance. Help them to come to their senses. Only you can do this, God. They need your grace so badly right now. And what we recognize when we start to read it that way is just as Satan was seeking to capture people back in that day, so Satan is seeking to capture people in our day today. He's just as alive, just as active, trying to get you. He's trying to get your parents captured. He's seeking to take down your coworkers. And all of us need grace desperately. It's like Paul wants Timothy to put on a set of glasses, his grace glasses, where he looks out and he sees every single person in my life, every person in these pews, every person you'll see at lunch today, every person you'll see on the highway going to work tomorrow need grace desperately. And can't you just see Paul living this in his own life? I was on my way to Damascus trying to persecute and kill Christians didn't know I needed grace, and God's grace broke into my life. Timothy, I remember that. He brought me to my senses. He did an amazing work. Timothy, you need grace each day. You need God to break into your life. These guys around you, Timothy, they need grace. They need God to break into their life. Timothy, remember this. There are no grace graduates. It's not like you complete elementary school and then move on and you're on to the next better educational religious thing. No, you're always in grace school. I hope you're not always in grade school, but you're always in grace school. All of us are. And every single night, my kids come home and they got reading homework so they can learn how to read because they need that in grade school. And I wonder if you've forgotten that you're never out of grace school. And maybe on Sundays you come to get a little grace, but you've lost track of how much you need grace every single day. Look, this is just like the ant thing. I know that grace is kind of like this basic Christianity thing. Just like spraying for the ants is a basic spring cleaning kind of thing. But can you look me in the eye and say, Justin, this last week, it was a high priority in my life that I received daily sustaining grace from God, daily transforming grace from God, daily sin-killing grace from God. I need that. We all do. I've talked a lot about ants and spray, and let me tell you something, and I'll close with this. At our house, I haven't sprayed for ants yet. I know where the spray is, if I run out, I know where to go get more. I've talked to my friends that tell me how the chemicals work and best time to spray, how that works. I've seen it work in the past. But this year, despite knowing a lot about it, I haven't put my trust in it. I haven't taken action on it. And I wonder as we look at the priorities of a disciple today, if you could tell me all sorts of things about them. You know how it works. You've seen it work in the past. You know where to go get it but you haven't actually taken action. And maybe you're here and you know all kinds of Jesus-y stuff. You've been going to church for a real long time, but you've never had that transforming moment where you say, I'm moving away from religious tryhardism to placing all my trust in Jesus. 
that he would be my savior and I will give all of my life and all of my days to follow him. Friend, if that's you this morning, can I just tell you, today can be the day that your sins are forgiven, that you have a real relationship with God, a secure hope of heaven. That's why Jesus came, to die on the cross, to pay for your sins, so that you would entrust yourself to his grace. You simply cry out, ask him, God, forgive me of my sins. I realize I can't do this. I've been trying real hard and getting nowhere. Priorities of disciples. First one is you got to become a disciple. And you become a disciple by trusting in the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came and lived the life we couldn't. You died the death we should have so that we could become your children. We could become co-heirs of eternal life with you. Jesus, we recognize our primary need each day when we wake up is grace. Grace to follow you, to see ourselves rightly, to put sin to death, to strive for righteousness. We pray, Lord Jesus, you would move in our hearts. Help us to receive your word and to act upon it. We pray these things in your name. Amen.